Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Are You a Robot? Today, we are talking with the incredible David Wood. Let's hear a brief intro and then get into the conversation. My name's David Wood. I am a full-time futurist author, presenter, and organizer. And in that role, I chair London Futurists. Okay, so if this is your first time tuning in to Are You a Robot? Let me take a brief second to explain what we are up to and the why behind this series. We are a series that aims to tackle some of the greatest questions and challenges that come up when you're looking at AI and related technologies. The way that we're doing that is by gathering the best and brightest minds in their respective fields to come on the show and talk with me about what they're doing, how they see the current state of affairs, and if there's any best practices that we can take away from their hard work and diligence. I will mention that we have a community that we're building around these conversations. So if there's anything that you particularly enjoy, jump into our Slack community. You can find the link below and introduce yourself. Let us know what you're working on and how you feel about the current state of affairs or if there's anything in these conversations that particularly interest you. Last but not least, I want to give a huge shout out to our sponsors, Ethics Grade. They are doing some incredible things around ESG ratings. For those of you that do not know what ESG ratings are, that is studying the non-financial impact that companies have on society. So Ethics Grade is particularly studying the AI ethics programs, the data governance of all these companies that we use and potentially love or hate on a daily basis. I encourage you to check out some of the scorecards that Ethics Grade has released to the world. You can click on the website link below or just go to ethicsgrade.io and download some scorecards. You probably will be surprised at some of the ratings that these companies have gotten. Some of the companies that you can check out are Amazon, Microsoft, Toyota, or even Tesla. And you can see what kind of ratings they're getting and how ethically they're doing things. That's it for now. Again, thanks to Ethics Trade for powering this episode. And let's jump into the full conversation with David Wood. Are you a robot? It is a pleasure to have you here with us. I'm really excited to talk about transhumanism today. And I know that you have quite the background, which I would love for the rest of us to hear about. Can you give us a little info on how you came to be where you are? This is not necessarily a job that many people hold. So I'd love to hear about the journey to get to where you are right now. So I became interested in the future, especially when I was in the smartphone industry in the early days. And that was an industry that was clearly changing a lot. The kinds of devices and applications and services that were possible at one stage were going to be overtaken, it was clear, fairly soon by new, more powerful hardware, more powerful software, more powerful networks. 
And we had to think about, well, how do we adapt our present product plans, our roadmaps in order to anticipate these possible extra capabilities of the future? So we were all to start off with part-time futurists arguing at lunchtime in between our coding sessions in the morning and afternoon. We'd gather and we'd argue about the best ways to optimize access to data structures. But then we start thinking, hey, what kind of applications will people really want to use? And I vividly remember a discussion in which our head of marketing played devil's advocate and said, nobody who's a real person is ever going to use the internet for example. That was a fine discussion and one of many others like it. And over time, my responsibilities focused on, we called it uh, research, although nowadays I might call it futurism or foresight. And in my time in the smartphone industry, I date this from 1988, when of course there were no smartphones, but there were rudimentary mobile computers, till 2013, when I broke my connections at that stage with Accenture Mobility, where I was a head of technology planning, kind of CTO figure. Over that time, I realized that what was happening in smartphones was going to be repeated, but even larger in many other fields of technology. So artificial intelligence was coming. Gene editing and synthetic biotech was coming. Nanotechnology with nano-sized robots were coming. The ability to reprogram not just our silicon, but even our own brains was coming. And what would that mean? What kind of a future would that entail? How could we steer that? And so I changed from being a futurist within the smartphone industry, if you like, to being a full-time futurist. Wow. There's a lot of places we could go from that answer. I want to take it step by step, though, and maybe you can unpack some of those conversations you were having in your early years and what you thought was going to happen, where it actually went, and how far off were you? Well, uh, we had a lot of things right in our predictions of the future. I often show in slides a graphic that my colleagues and I created in 1998 that foretold in rough terms the next 10 years in which there would be increasing miniaturization of computers. The computers would become more mobile. That was one trend. And that trend was going to be impacted or converged with another trend, which was that phones which initially were dumb phones, they were just simple terminals, they would gradually acquire more capabilities, more colorful screens, larger screens, and some rudimentary applications. For example, Nokia put a game on their phones called Snake, which was very addictive for a while. Mm. Then there were more. So we foresaw that possibility. We weren't quite sure what these devices would be called. And in that 1998 forecast, we said the world will be dominated by wireless information devices. That name did not stick. But we also had communicators and smartphones in that same uh, picture. And it was smartphone that was actually the successful uh, idea. We thought that people would be quite comfortable with large screen devices, but that wasn't the case to start off with. For a while, people wanted smaller, lighter, cheaper. And so there was a focus for a while on having uh, powerful devices that were still somehow simple. Then we were overtaken by a larger phenomenon. Silicon Valley eventually managed to figure out how to do smartphones as well, after many failures, it should be said. 
Apple are famous, of course, for introducing the iPhone, conquering the world, but they had many mistakes before they reached the iPhone. So we weren't too worried about them for a while. We sort of decided that the real innovation in uh, smartphones was coming from East Asia, Korea and Japan, and from Europe, uh, Scandinavian countries. Nokia was from Finland, Ericsson was from Sweden, and mm. so forth. But uh, in the end, uh, the Silicon Valley companies uh, got more things right, and uh, Nokia, uh, our lead investor, and our other lead investors were gradually overtaken, gradually and then suddenly overtaken in a pattern which actually I think applies much more widely. Yeah, it's a fascinating story, and especially knowing what we know now, about Nokia and Ericsson and anyone who can remember the days of the Motorola Razor and like you said, Snake, I don't think there is anyone that's my age that did not play Snake or was not addicted to it like you mentioned before. And so as this evolved, the, this being the smartphones or the phones turning into smartphones, do you, how do you think we've done so far? What do you feel like the state of the smartphones are at right now? Because I, for one, have a bit of a love-hate relationship with it. I know there's a lot of talk about disconnecting and how it was supposed to be a godsend, but it turned out to make us more connected. What are your thoughts on it? And did you foresee maybe some of these repercussions that have come from having a computer, a high, highly, highly powerful computer in our pocket at all times? Well, I can actually look at an essay which I wrote in 2001 and circulated within my colleagues at that time. And so it's there in black and white, what I thought the next uh, 10 years would bring. And in part, I was correct. I predicted that uh, although in 2001, there was something like a million smartphones in use, I said that by about 2007, there might be 100 million such devices. The majority, I predicted, would be running the Symbian OS that uh, my teams and I had uh, helped to create. To that extent, it was correct. That did happen by 2007. Although it wasn't quite as I envisioned it, uh, I didn't realize quite how many people would get phones. And there were many more people using phones of all sorts. And a smaller proportion of them at that stage were, were, were smartphones. So that was there. How have we done as an industry overall? Maybe seven out of 10. I think uh, there are many tremendously good aspects of smartphones, which we sort of forgotten about and we take for granted the ability to navigate with Google Maps is an incredible, wonderful thing. The ability to just type a few letters even, and sometimes the intelligence in the cloud can figure out what we're likely to be asking about. So at first, the first time I typed something and misspelled it, and Google said, did you actually mean to type this? I thought, wow, that's so good. But now we take it for granted. So there are countless uh, blessings from smartphones, and we could talk more about that. But you're quite right. They are potentially destructive as well. And although I foresaw that there might be some drawbacks to these uh, uses, I didn't foresee quite how much our minds would be uh, held captive by some of the things on these phones and by the social networks to which they're connected. I didn't foresee how people would be uh, manipulated 
that we would be inclined to buy things we probably shouldn't buy. We'd be inclined to vote for people or vote for causes that probably we shouldn't vote for. We might even fall in love with people that we probably shouldn't fall in love with. In each case, because the system knows enough about us to manipulate us. And I don't think the industry foresaw that clearly enough. And it certainly didn't do enough to protect against it. Instead, the industry had a motto, which can be sort of a seen in its extreme form in the saying in Facebook, which used to be up on the walls there, move fast and break things. The idea was if you weren't breaking things from time to time, you weren't moving fast enough and you would be caught up by competitors. And their view was if things did get broken, so what? They would be fixed soon. But what we're seeing actually, when things get broken, they don't easily get fixed. And often the impact can be much more serious than just, oh, that was a kind of a strange thing. Let's say reboot and we'll be fine. Sometimes you can't reboot. So there should have been much more caution, I would have said, about some of the adverse consequences. And the argument against caution is, well, it's a race, you know, it's the, we've got to get there first. And that is uh, one of the drawbacks of the competitive environment in which we live. Sometimes it's a race to the bottom, not a bottom in absolute sense, because obviously the devices are becoming more powerful and more capable, but there are some really bad uh, aspects of them, which is why currently I can only give the industry a seven out of 10, roughly speaking. To what degree, if any, do you feel responsible for what is happening right now? Well, my own company, uh, which I was co-founder, Symbian, very much had the motto of enable multiple uh, sets of uh, applications. We weren't going to dictate what was going to happen to the industry. We wanted to have devices that were open, but also devices that were secure. And we put a lot of focus on security. In fact, we slowed down our development. It was quite controversial at the time. We said, you know, uh, waves of viruses are going to come to the mobile industry. We need to be sure that we don't fall foul of them. So our system wasn't perfect by any means, but it did address quite a few of these issues. Android uh, is an excellent operating system in many ways, but I'm not sure it took a, a, a security quite the same way. Uh, Apple have a, ruled many things with an iron fist. They have set up their own quite careful logging systems. Uh, I don't think uh, my own company was particularly at fault there. Uh, and the bigger question is not who was right and who was wrong. It's what can we learn uh, collectively from that. And so one of the first books I wrote, indeed, uh, Smartphones and Beyond, Lessons from the Remarkable uh, Rise and Fall of Symbian, it's set out as, well, this happened in the past, and actually here's what the broader lessons are. More focus on thinking ahead, more focus on security. Focus on enabling openness, but without uh, allowing uh, chaos to rule. Uh, focus on uh, thinking about the integrity and quality of the platform rather than just rushing to get the next device out and then suffering more uh, pain as a result of that rush. Hmm. I want to take a, a step back and mention also what you were talking about before, on the move fast and break things and how you were saying that sometimes when you break things, you can't just reboot and it all goes back to normal because right now we are messing with society in a way. And the scale that we've come to is so much bigger than I think what we realized. And as you mentioned, you didn't foresee so big of 
a, or you didn't foresee cell phones being so ubiquitous within the culture and within the world. And when you break things in society, sometimes it's not so easy to put back together. Uh, I think that's a brilliant insight. Next thing that I want to jump into is your book, Vital Foresight, and the case for active transhumanism. This is really what I would love to talk to you about today. First of all, before we jump into the book, maybe we can talk about transhumanism and what exactly that means. So the basic word trans means transcend, and it means that we humans can transcend, overcome, go beyond many of the limitations that we have inherited from our biological evolution, from our past culture, from the philosophies that were around when we were growing up. Our evolution has been wonderful in many ways. It has given us uh, many great capabilities, but it has left us vulnerable too. It has given us a whole bunch of cognitive biases, that's uh, shortcuts in reasoning, which might have made sense in a simple time, but which are more dangerous in a more complicated world. Our evolution gave us a sweet tooth, which again made sense when there wasn't so much sweet stuff around. But when uh, supermarket shelves are full up of uh, tempting food, our sweet tooth is something we need to learn to overcome. Our evolution didn't particularly care that we were happy. Uh, evolution cared that we were successful in reproducing. And so it often leads us into states of depression, leads us into abusing power. You know, it is the story of uh, humanity that when people get power, they abuse it, whether it's an individual one-on-one -on -one relationships, whether it's more uh, globally or in uh, tribal forms. So we have tendencies. And transhumanism says we can and should fix these bad tendencies. And we're going to do it by applying any tools that are available, by applying reason, but particularly by applying the fruits of science and technology. So technology has already extended our average lifespan. It's more than doubled it in the last 200 years. People would typically die much younger. And thanks to all kinds of technological interventions, better hygiene, better vaccinations, better antibiotics, better surgery with anesthetics, we typically live longer lives. Well, that's just the beginning in the transhumanist view. There's no reason at all why we need to age. In fact, there are creatures in nature that don't age. Of course, they get older from a calendar point of view, but their bodies don't get more worn and torn as they age. So we can look forward to overcoming the tendency to become decrepit and senile and uh, decay and die. We can overcome our tendencies to collective stupidity. We can overcome our tendencies to be egotric, to dominate, to deceive others and deceive ourselves. We can overcome our tendencies to misuse power. That's the transhumanist vision. So something that you put on your website that I think is very interesting and I would love to zoom in on is people told you not to use that word. Can you talk about why that is and why you eventually went with it? So I've been calling myself transhumanist uh, on and off for about coming on 20 years. But it's a word that is uh, quite controversial. Some transhumanists have said we should stop using the word altogether. It's sort of uh, associated with uh, the Silicon Valley ethos, the same kind of move fast and break things ethos that I mentioned earlier. 
So when people don't know much about transhumanism and they read about it in the press, they assume it's just about a technology, technology, technology for technology's sake. They assume it's about making money for money's sake. So there are some uh, bad ideas associated in at least some people's minds with the word transhumanism. So people have said, let's just talk about a, a techno-progressive or let's talk about humanity plus. Let's avoid that word. But I think it's, it's a good word. It is highly descriptive of what we want to say. And if we actually look at what transhumanists themselves say, they don't have that kind of a, a careless or reckless attitude that I mentioned. Transhumanists uh, in their founding documents, there is such a thing as a founding document of transhumanism. It's called the Transhumanist Declaration, dates from 1998. It has eight clauses, and four of them point out to the dangers of a misuse of technology in various ways. And it says we've got to be careful about it. Yeah, we should move quickly. We should be urgent, but we must uh, be wise at the same time. And so I think there's nothing wrong with transhumanism. And so I've put it there, even though people have got, in some cases, embarrassed by it. I want to make it a good word again. Mm. As you talk about these dangers and how you think through things and... You've seen the evolution, as you were talking about, of the smartphone and being right on certain predictions and not seeing other predictions. Right now, are there things that we need to be paying attention to when it comes to transhumanism? Where do you focus on and what are some potential blind spots or places that we need to focus in on? Like before with the cellular phones and placing a lot of focus on security. What are some things with transhumanism that you feel like we should be placing more focus on? It's a big topic. So with uh, the application of biotechnology, potentially we can enhance ourselves. We can uh, reprogram our genetics using techniques such as CRISPR, amongst others. We can reprogram our epigenetics, which doesn't change our DNA, but it changes the molecular tags that are placed onto parts of our DNA and different cells in our body so that some genes are turned off in some cells and on in others. And as we age, these tags sometimes get a bit disordered. And so cells in different parts of our body start behaving in ways they shouldn't. Well, we can reprogram our epigenetics too. We can reprogram our biome. Our biome is the set of all the little bacteria that are inside our digestive system and have a big impact on our health. But each time we make such a change, there are possibilities of unforeseen consequences. And that's very much a lesson that I spell in my book, that our interventions in nature, which often initially seem to be good, quite often turned out later to have a detrimental consequences. So one example is DDT. DDT was an insecticide that was sprayed widely to control malaria, that was responsible for typhoid, uh, to control mosquitoes that were responsible for malaria and typhus. It was held as a wonder. The Prime Minister of uh, Great Britain during the war, Winston Churchill, has uh, some words in which he's very enthusiastic about it. And he had a right to be because until that particular uh, war, Typhus had often caused more deaths in soldiers than the actual engagement with the enemy had caused. 
it's quite remarkable when you look at it, when Napoleon took his grand army all the way from France to Russia and came back, uh, huge numbers of them had been killed by diseases such as typhus. So people were enthusiastic. And then it was noticed, oh, DDT, looks like it's harming birds. It might be harming bird eggs. Eggs are getting too thin. Rachel Carson spoke about a silent spring in which there would no longer be bird song. Other people found that it could be causing cancer in various ways in humans. Oh, let's be much more careful about it. Thalidomide is another example. Thalidomide was a drug that had lots of good things said about it. It was uh, something that would deal with uh, morning sickness. It was something that would deal with various other problems. And then, oh my goodness, in some cases, it could cause terrible damage to the growing a child inside a mother's womb. Then there's plastics. What could possibly go wrong with plastics? Such a wonderful invention. Oh, plastics are clogging up all parts of our ecosystem. And there's something called microplastics, which might be working their way into small fish and then damaging big fish. We're not quite sure of all the consequences. So that's just a small number of examples. And the closer we come to changing our own human nature, the risks are there of uh, unforeseen consequences. Does that mean, therefore, we should stop? Does that mean we should ban all these technologies? That would be a wrong conclusion. It just means we need to be more careful at foreseeing things and more careful at monitoring and more careful at quickly getting involved if there's something untoward being noticed. And that also requires an honesty and an openness. And sadly, some people in various companies aren't very open to having possible bad consequences of their products noticed. So some of the companies in agrotech the, who produce various uh, things that enhance agriculture, want to cover up any evidence that there might be bad consequences in nature from them. Well, we need to have a much more honest and open discussion. How do we have those honest and open discussions? Is it through third parties coming and auditing these systems? Or is it expecting the companies to be more transparent, even though it may affect their bottom line, which I have difficulty seeing the different companies saying, you know what, this is going to hurt our profit, but we should talk about it. So I don't think we can just rely on good intentions of the companies involved. There is the saying, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are nearly always bad men. That's a saying from the 19th century, Lord Acton. Uh, historian and politician. I would add in the modern age, great companies are nearly always bad companies. I don't mean that the people there are malevolent, but I do mean that they can, these great companies can end up with a momentum of their own. And although they may be founded on idealistic basis, they may initially be highly innovative. They may strongly seek to deliver great service. Over time, if they become more powerful, then monopoly rules sort of apply, and they can uh, tend to optimize their profits with less of a concern for competition because, well, there is less competition there. And these powerful companies also can manipulate the regulatory regime. And there's often an overly cozy relationship between the regulators and the companies they are meant to be regulating. So this is hard. That's the first thing. There is no easy answer to this. We need lots of people working on it. And that's fair enough because, after all, it takes lots of people to create these wonderful technologies in the first place. 
is a lot of hard work there. We just need uh, correspondingly sufficient focus on the safety issues. Just imagine if the nuclear industry, the industry that builds uh, nuclear uh, power stations, if they said, well, we're going to build the nuclear uh, energy systems, and once we built them, we're going to add on the safety features at the end to make sure that there's no explosion. That would be impossible. So governments around the world have insisted that the nuclear power energy industry uh, builds in safety from the beginning and checks all the way through. Arguably, uh, that hasn't turned out very well, and we could talk about that as well. There seems to be an over-preponderance of some uh, outdated regulatory seams which are holding up potential innovative new uh, nuclear power designs. But anyway, we are going to need to work hard at this and we're going to need to put it on public conversation. It's something that everybody should learn about. One of the big messages of my book, Vital Foresight, is the transformation of what people learn about in schools. It should be taught about from the beginning. And nowadays, most school children learn about global warming, which is good, and projects are done in schools uh, to make people think about this. Well, there are many other issues that need to be taught at all levels of society, and we need to encourage. And we can't just leave it to the companies because by themselves, they will tend to be late. So we need powerful and effective politicians. And that's a solution that many people don't like because politicians often do bad things too. But if uh, democracy works, and sometimes it does, if and it needs to get better, then it can provide a sufficient counterweight to these tendencies of powerful industrial corporations. It feels like there has been regulation put into place in a lot of these areas, like you're talking about in the nuclear industry or within finance. And for some reason, other areas have not been affected by this. And so they're running wild, we could say. And like you're talking about in the agritech industry, they don't necessarily put forth all of the findings because they're afraid. Is, is it needed that you feel like we're going to have to be very use case specific for all of this regulation? And if so, there are so many applications for these different technologies, how can we keep up? So again, I say, this is hard. And you should be suspicious of anybody who offers you a simple one, two, three formula solution. Just as there's no one, two, three formula for how to build a truly great uh, mobile app. You, know, you need to get lots of things right. So we're going to need to get lots of things right to put the right kind of regulations and incentives in place. It's not just about forbidding people to do things, it's about encouraging people to do things as well. There are things called public goods, which uh, people don't tend to invest in by themselves, but which with collective action organized by governments, we are more likely to do. So there's a range of policy possibilities. There are things that can be done, and we're going to have to, each in each case, look hard. And it's not just a matter of being heavyweight. I'm absolutely not a fan of heavyweight regulation. I'm a fan of a precise, sometimes it's called lean regulations, and they're reviewed in an agile and regular basis. 
So it's like in software development. If you have too many rules, then it bogs down the software team. You should give them a lot of freedom, but there are certain things you should not allow them to get away with. For example, if they don't put their code, source code, in a source code uh, repository on a regular basis, that's a no-no, you know? Absolutely, because even the best of coders can have accidents on their laptops and lose all their code and whatever. So that's uh, one example of a core principle there. And there should be similar core principles in each of the other fields. And they are not a fixed thing. They will change. And if they don't change, then they can switch from being, on the whole, useful and helpful to sometimes being unhelpful, which means a regular discussion. And we need the best quality people incentivized to work in this, rather than this being seen as a third-rate job, which people are not good enough to get the other exciting jobs end up working in instead. No, this has to be uh, of critical importance, and we should reward people who have the dual skill sets, enough understanding of the relevant technology and enough understanding of the policy levers, the legalities, the regulatory possibilities. Mm, that is an excellent point. How can we reward them? I wonder, because it is, like you said, it is an intersection between these two fields that are not easy. And neither field by itself is easy. Both of them together, it's like you get unicorns. How can we incentivize more of that? Is it through education? Is it through more pay? Uh, is it making them heroes in society? All of the above, yes. Uh, we should uh, celebrate people who aren't just the uh, giants who take huge leaps and uh, stumble from time to time and get up and uh, are heroic. We should also celebrate the people who are demonstrably careful in the right sense about their work. So these should be heroes as well. And uh, we should also indeed include uh, these uh, notions uh, at all stages of education. We should have lots of uh, books, magazine articles, podcasts that focus on this. And yes, we need to pay people. We need to give prizes. We need to ensure that projects are not approved unless they are demonstrably putting enough of their resources into these safety, uh, monitoring, foresight activities. As we look at the future and from your perspective, if it all goes well, what are some greater ideas that you feel like we will be living through as a society? So it's quite possible that some stage around the middle of this century, most people will no longer work for a living. We will still go out and do things. We will get very passionate, but we will be doing them because they are sort of our personal crusades or our hobbies or our great interests rather than we are doing it because we need to earn money. Why will we no longer need to earn much money? Well, because all the essentials of a good life will be almost free. They will be produced by automation in a way that some things, a lot of the things are already almost free, many things online, Wikipedia, any of the social media services no longer cost money. And as time goes on, more can be done and should be done to ensure that the basics of life are free. And this won't require a lot of human activity because over time, automation of all sorts, AIs, robots, drones, other systems will be able to do 
enough. They won't duplicate humans in every way, but we won't need to duplicate humans in every way. Even so-called creative industries, the, even the caring and compassionate industries, there will be uh, robots working in there too. There are already AIs that can uh, come up with uh, very interesting music of all genres. There are robots that can help with uh, elder care. There are robots that can help with childcare. And increasingly, there will be other robots that do other compassionate activities. Might there be a robotic masseur? Why not? You know, uh, I remember the, one of the first times I took my son into a car wash in the car. Is uh, a very young boy. He was horrified. He thought this this machine is going to crush him. But now we we know that these machines are calibrated, so they don't crush the car. They do a good job. So I think in due course there will be robots doing all this stuff, and that means we will be in a post-work society. The transition between there and now is going to be quite a challenge, but we need to have the vision of where we could reach. So I hear that argument a lot, and I wonder, like you're saying, yes, there's going to be the majority of what we need for a good life and is going to be free. I love to travel and... I wonder about that. Like, how am I going to continue traveling around? Is that going to be free also? Do you foresee that uh, I just got on a boat to come here to an island in Greece? And is that going to be fully solar powered? And there's only going to be robotics that are part of this boat. And so it will be free. Like, I, I wonder how that plays out and the... I guess the greater question there is the inequalities when it comes to, because if you're speaking about, we all have certain things, but then I imagine some people are still going to have nice perks. And so how we play with that. So let's take these questions one by one in terms of travel. To some extent, we might be comfortable traveling less because we will have better virtual travel opportunities. And we won't actually travel, but we'll put on virtual headsets and we will have a, not just headsets, in fact, whole body suits. And we can have the experience of being together. And some of the virtual worlds that we might travel to might be even more enchanting than the physical worlds. But I can see that people will still want to travel. Will boats, planes be solar powered? Some may. There may be other options as well. There may be more use for nuclear-powered systems. After all, there are nuclear-powered submarines. There could be other systems people looking at with various hydrogen-powered flight. And it's a question of can we create that hydrogen clean? Uh, in principle, yes. The bigger question is are we going to focus on that? Is this the big direction in which we want all of industry and innovation to go? I think we should. We should be setting it as the, the desirable goals. Then you come to possibly the most important question, which is the consequences if this technology is not available on an equitable basis. And in my book, I look at uh, 11 landmines which are things that could explode on our way to this uh, future sustainable superabundance. We may not get there because something goes badly wrong en route. And the first of these is a growing number of people who are 
or perceive themselves to be left behind. People who perceive themselves as not gaining what they feel is the somehow a fair share of the wonders of the fruits of abundance. And we are already seeing this. We are seeing in some parts of the world, in some demographics, life expectancy is declining. I said earlier that it's gone up and up and up. Well, actually, in the last few years, there's a growth of what people have called the deaths of despair. This is even before the COVID pandemic, for example. If you look at the research from the Princeton, the Harvard, sorry, the Princeton husband and wife pair, Anne Case and Angus Dayton, they have documented how more and more people are dying because of not just suicide, but because of drink-related diseases, because of obesity, bad food, and because of opioid addiction. So, and what leads people into that? Many things, but often it's a, a lack of vision. It's a despair. It's a feeling that life is unfair to them, and therefore they go in a worse circumstance. So, it is an absolute high priority to address this risk of unequal access to technology. Some people say... It'll be solved automatically by the miracle of the free market, which over time will generate things at lower and lower cost points. Again, we can look at smart points, smartphones as an example. Uh, remarkably powerful smartphones are now available for just a few tens of dollars. Not as good as the top of the range, but still very capable. But I don't think we can take it for granted that the free market will always deliver uh, everything fairly to people. And I think we need to have good politics involved too. There's that word again, politics. Politics sometimes does need to step in to deal with market failures, one of which is when monopolies uh, take more power. Others are when the market hasn't taken proper account of externalities. In other words, the people who are buying and who are selling are quite happy, but the consequences of that production line, whether it's noise or pollution or greenhouse gases, is not being taken account of. So politics is going to be necessary and it's going to be effective, light touch, but effective politics. And if we don't do that, there is a risk of things blowing up badly. What could go wrong? Of course, some people will die with deaths of despair. Others, what do they do in their anger? Well, they may reach out for weapons of mass destruction. And some people already do run off and join various religious fanatical cults or political fanatical cults and storm the White House or fly airplanes into Twin Towers. And with more transhumanist technology available, things like genetic re-engineering, some of them might be motivated in their anger, in their despair, in their frustration, in their desire to show the world. They may use their abilities to concoct something even worse than the COVID-19 pandemic and unleash it on the world as a sort of suicide wish. So there are many ways in which weapons of mass destruction could make the situation of unequal access to technology more serious. Mm. And I want to jump in a little bit further on those different landmines that you talk about. But before we do that, maybe you can explain to me how you feel with the current political situation. And if you're optimistic for the future that you're talking about and being able to have strong politicians or strong politics lead the way for this future that you speak of? 
Well, in the last uh, five years, there's been lots of truly worrying developments in politics around the world. When I wrote my book on the abolition of aging in 2014 to 2016, I spent 18 months or so writing it. I thought, well, what could go wrong? What could prevent us getting to this world? And uh, I saw, actually, bad politics can get in the way. Bad politics can put other ideas in people's minds. It can lead unintentionally to wars and chaos. You know, Now, thankfully, we haven't had uh, a third world war yet. Thankfully, we've avoided that, but it's not far away. We could have uh, escalating Cold War 2.0 between uh, China and the rest of the world or two different uh, groups. So it's by no means certain that we're going to avoid this outcome. And I do talk about divided nations as a landmine. In fact, as a meta landmine, because it's one of the things that makes all the other landmines worse. You know, if people uh, are pulled in these uh, different directions, this threat can get in the way of solving other things. So how do we solve it? We've got to find something that transcends these uh, current differences. We've got to convince people that there are sufficiently serious problems that should force some kind of uh, cooperation, despite uh, the tendencies to pull in different directions. And one example I tell in my book is how Ronald Reagan, on the one hand, who was the U.S. president, who came to the presidency, what, in 1980. He had spent 20 years criticizing Marxist-Leninism. There are speeches that he gave in 1960 when he forecast, you know, there's a looming existential crisis. We've only got 10 years left, he said in 1960. He was a, I mean, that was a bit of an exaggeration before Marxist-Leninism overcomes America. So he came to power and he was determined to do something to avoid the risks of the Soviet Union defeating America in a nuclear arms race. So he invented this thing, or he got the Star Wars Initiative, SDI. And compare him with Mikhail Gorbachev. So when he came to power in the Soviet Union, what, 1984, 85 or so, he also inherited 64 years of hostility to the West. And it didn't look very good. The, I, I was a university uh, doing postgraduate studies at the stage. There were more and more intermediate nuclear missiles, intermediate range nuclear missiles in uh, Europe. There was a huge numbers of uh, ballistic missiles. But what pulled them back from the brink was the work of, I would call him a futurist, uh, the Carl Sagan, the science popularizer. He was a real scientist as well as being a science popularizer, and he drew on work with various colleagues to highlight the risks of nuclear winter, which says even if there's a li fairly limited exchange of nuclear weapons, which both the Soviet Union and America had put into their game planning, that could trigger a much worse crisis than any of them expected. It would throw so much dust up into the atmosphere, it would block out the light of the sun, and just as the dinosaurs were destroyed, not by a direct impact from the incoming meteor 66 million years ago, but by the, the dust that was stirred up and uh, blotted out and stopped all photosynthesis for a few years. Uh, we humans could die in such a way. And that realization, which Carl Sagan and others popularized, suddenly caused both Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, despite their long trajectories that they were on, to pause. And the two of them, they were both remarkable people in their own right, they managed to find a personal uh, rapport and they managed to make more concessions to each other. And of course, the world still has nuclear weapons, but many fewer than before. The intermediate range nuclear missiles were with, withdrawn from Europe. 
the cruise missiles and SS-20s and what have you, and the Strategic Defence Initiative was, by stages, shut down. So that's the kind of thing that I'm hoping that futurist discussions will break through to existing uh, political logjams. So even bad politicians, they will listen to their advisors and their advisors will listen and hear not just the risks, so I don't want to have the, this podcast be remembered simply for, oh, David, we talked about lots of risks. There are tremendously powerful, positive opportunities as well, if only we see them. The sustainable superabundance is within our grasp if we organize society, encourage society, encourage industry to make the right investments and innovations. I'm so happy you called out Carl Sagan right there because one of the most awe-inspiring things that I have come across are his tapes that you can find on YouTube and they put nice music in the background and it is absolutely incredible to listen to him and listen to his vision. And along those lines, how do you feel we can best inspire change like you're speaking of? Is it by writing poems or by creating or asking for regulation, lobbying for regulation to be done? Is it like you're, you mentioned now, Carl Sagan, just talking through potential outcomes or all of the above, like uh, we said earlier? Well, happily, people have actually studied what causes big change initiatives to fail. So there's... Uh, famous Harvard professor called John Cotter, who has been writing about this for more than 30 years. He has an eight-stage program for change, and he points out there are eight major reasons why these change initiatives fail. Therefore, there are eight things we have to get right if we really want to maximize the prospects of success. And I won't go through all eight, although I do in my book. Uh, the main causes of lack of progress are, one, a sufficient lack of sufficient urgency. People say, oh, yes, there might be a problem with uh, climate change, but, hey, we'll leave it for next year or we'll leave it for our next generation to sort out. So lack of a sense of urgency, and you've got to counteract that by making plausible, uh, if it is plausible, I mean, you don't want to make up stories for the sake of stories, but if you think there is a plausible series of probabilities which could cause things to go far wrong, you've got to highlight that. So people do need to be saying, oh, my goodness, let's pay attention to this. But second you also need a credible, compelling vision of a positive future too. And if it's and it's got to be more than just a kumbaya. It's got to be more than, hey, let's all embrace. You know, it's got to be a practical step-by-step -step set of things to be done. And third, Cotter says, the third reason is that there isn't a sufficiently empowered coalition of change agents. There may be a few people who cry out in the wind, so if you are responsible for society, you need to ensure that there is a sufficiently high-powered team. So I think all cabinets, all political cabinets around the world need to appoint at the highest level a minister for the future. You know, we've got a minister for children, sometimes a minister for equality, a minister for various other important things. Well, the future is just as important. So maybe one of the first five or six most important cabinet ministers should be somebody like that. And they should be working on this, not just as an occasional thing they think about, along with lots of other responsibilities. And they should have a big team working with them too. The fourth thing is lack of sufficient communications. And you, by the way, you've got to communicate in many 
different ways. So quite right. There are roles for poems. There are roles for uh, music, for videos, and for short stories. Sadly, too many of the short stories or even novels or Hollywood films about the future are actually not very helpful. They are done often for entertainment, which I guess is how they make money. And they plant ideas in people's minds which aren't the, the best. So we've got to fight against that. We've got to put more effort into creating plausible scenarios. Or if there is an implausible scenario, then we've got to follow up quickly and say, well, you know, this is what's wrong with this. For example, in Terminator, just the one thing that's wrong with Terminator, if there really is a very powerful AI, humans won't have a chance. You know, in Terminator, there's a human who exerts, we can call a superhuman effort and overcomes the AI. That's just fantasy. You know, if AI really is uh, more powerful, uh, more, uh, we haven't got to hope we're humans. So we've got to cut it off before it gets to that. We've got to ensure that that situation never occurs. So communication, communication, communication. And maybe I will do the fifth. The fifth is you've got to be able to demonstrate and celebrate uh, small wins. So I mentioned we need a roadmap, but people have got to see that something is happening and there is some progress. So one of the things I'm keen on is highlighting transhumanism here and now, ways in which people are already having their lives extended, having their uh, rationality improved, having their character selectively improved by means of various uh, smart helmets, uh, TDCS, uh, transcranial direct current stimulation and so on different ways. So let's highlight the small steps that have been taken and then uh, join up the narrative to say, well, this is where we could go if we get it right, uh, but not forgetting here's where we probably will go if we don't get it right, which is uh, quite a frightening situation. And do you feel there's no in-between? Is it either we get it right and it's all hunky-dory or we get it wrong and it's dark days? If I look ahead to 2050, I think there's only a kind of a 10% probability we'll be bumbling along in the middle somewhere, you know, that we will be broadly the same as today. Why? Because the genies are being let out of the bottles and they, they are going to put so much power into people's hands. And if these powers are not used constructively, they almost certainly will be used destructively. So we've been lucky with nuclear weapons, by the way. Nuclear weapons have been very hard to create, and it required the resources of a nation state to create a nuclear power, a nuclear bomb. But in the future, with the various other technologies I've talked about, we haven't talked yet so much about cyber hacking. I think that's a tremendous risk that more and more of our systems are vulnerable to hacking by just even a small group of bedroom hackers, you know, script kiddies or whatever. So the general point is that the, part, the technologies are going to be increasingly powerful. There's something called Moore's Law that says every 18 months, roughly speaking, uh, you get twice as powerful silicon for the same cost as before. Well, there's something that a futurist called Eliezer Yudkowsky semi-humorously offered as Moore's Law of Mad Scientist. He said, every 18 months, the IQ necessary for somebody to destroy the world comes down by one point or so. Oh, good now, Lord. that's not quantitative, but it just it's true. You know, uh, various religious groups in the past did try to harness a terrible, uh, uh, toxic uh, bio, uh, bi biological uh, compounds. The Om Shunryukyo group in Japan, which let off sarin gas in the Tokyo underground, they 
had more ambitious plans, which they couldn't manage, thank goodness. They did work with various other compounds. But in the future, more people will be capable, which is why I think if we do nothing, we are almost certainly going to end up on that bad end of the fork. But I think we will waken up. I am optimistic more than I am pessimistic. I think 10% chance that we're bumbling along in the middle, 35% chance that we are doing things uh, badly, and what's left, a uh, 55% chance or a 65% chance that we are uh, doing things well. Is there an action item that I can do right now that you feel like would help us go in the direction of doing things re- well? Well, I would say in the first instance, uh, take a look at what I've written in uh, Vital Foresight. There are lots of recommendations there at different levels. I would also connect to communities that are thinking more about this on a serious basis. And we've got to find the right communities because, as I said, some of them are in it for entertainment purposes. Some of them are, there are some communities which are really there to help a company make money in one way or another. So I think you need to find a nonprofit organization. And one you can look at is London Futurists. But there are others around. I would point people at Humanity Plus, which is a, a non-profit a transhumanist organization, which has been in existence in various ways since 1998. They do lots of online activity too. There is the Millennium Project, which is less focused on uh, transhumanism, more focused on bringing the best principles of foresight to bear. So look around and uh, experiment with one or two communities, figure out which works for you, and then review it on a regular basis. Just because you made some uh, progress with one community at one stage doesn't mean necessarily that's the right community to stay engaged with on the longer term. We need to be agile in our collaborations as well as agile in our project plan. Fascinating. David, I've got one last question for you before we finish this up. This talk has been mind-blowing, to say the least. I want to know, are you a robot? Well, I am a biological robot, in a sense. Uh, I am a machine where the parts are created out of uh, biochemicals. So in that extent, yes, I'm not a silicon robot. Uh, But some stage, silicon robots probably will be able to do all that you and I are doing and do it better. And we need to be sure that we will have a good role in that future world. It's incredible talking to you and hearing your vision for the future. It has been more than I expected. I knew it was going to be a great conversation, but I was not expecting this. So I cannot thank you enough. This has been wonderful, David. Have a great day, and we will see you later. Well, your questions have been just right, and they dug deeper. So thanks so much for the interaction. Perfect. We'll see you later. Later.